Don Sebojo, this is At the Edge of Canada with TJ Phillips, bringing you weekly check-ins with all the major players in the Indigenous intellectual community in southern Manitoba and across the country. This week's show, we go over the edge of Canada into the United States, southwestern California, traditional Kumeyaay territory in San Diego, University of California, San Diego, in the northern part of the city. And we sit down with La Paperson, otherwise known as K. Wayne Yang. About five years ago, Wayne wrote an article with Alaskan scholar Eve Tuck. Decolonization is not a metaphor. It changed the landscape and the way in which we think about decolonization as a vehicle for radically changing the university space. Now, La Paperson, Wayne, has a new book out called A Third University is Possible, where they imagine and speculate about how a decolonizing university operates in its environment and through the what they call decolonizing riders do in a university space. How decolonizing a university isn't about changing the university. It's about subverting technologies to mobilize decolonizing agents. We work through gray literature as a form. This book is billed as gray literature by Minnesota Press. We talk about the anxieties of writing, black film criticism, ta Coates, our mentors, Greek mythology. Wayne is an incredibly vivid thinker, super smart and eloquent. It was a real pleasure to chat. This is a good one. Sit back, relax, and listen to La Paperson, K. Wayne Yang, on At the Edge of Canada. So Wayne, yeah. how do I address you? What is Le Paperson? Is that is that a nom de plume? Like, how does this work? Oh, that's a great question. I think you should just call me Wayne. Um, I've tried once to present as Le Paperson, it didn't work. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but I like to think of Le Paperson as uh, more than a pen name. Um, I feel like uh, there's certain writings that are Le Paperson's writings, and I'm writing for Le Paperson, um, and I. And I think of La Paperson as an avatar um, who I write for. And, and part of the idea is that maybe someone else one day will write for La Paperson. So, hmm. um, and I don't know if you're into Greek mythology. I know it sounds very Eurocentric, but... <laughs> <laughs> I was. <laughs> so I used to be. For, <laughs> yeah, so bear with me for a second, right? Um, <laughs> you know, so um, the reason I'm still somewhat okay with being into Greek mythology is because I... Um, you know, learned a lot from um, Afrocentric thinkers. And, you know, there's that whole book, Black Athena. You know, oh. And that's sort of this idea that, you know, were the Greeks really European? Were they, did they get all their stuff from Egypt and African mythologies? And, um, and are these actually African figures and African gods and stuff like that? So, um, but the, the, the idea is um, 
one of the things I tell my students sometimes if they say I'm a good mentor, I'll tell them, well, you know, the origin of the word mentor is from Greek mythology. It's Odysseus's, Ulysses' best friend is mentor. And when Odysseus is lost and trying to get home and confused, every now and then mentor will appear on his ship and talk to him. But it's actually the goddess Athena talking to him. Mm-hmm. And she appears to him as his as a close trusted friend, um, and so I tell, sort of tell students, um, you know, if I'm ever able to fill that role for you, it's because it's the goddess of wisdom and war appearing to you through someone that you trust. <laughs> um, and for me, La Paperson is a little bit like that. It's like writing for that um, for that uh, that avatar, if you will. Hmm. So it's not, I mean, that that's a beautiful story. I, I love that relationship to the name. I was curious if it, if in some ways it gives you this, this freedom to, to maybe say things that are um, politically contentious. Does it get a, give you the right to, to speak from a, a point of anonymity? Or is this largely a, a mutually beneficial creative relationship that you have with that avatar? Oh, that's a really good question. Wow. I, I never thought about the mutually beneficial relationship part. I Yeah, I, I've i written a, a, a like a two-line poem once to La Paperson. <laughs> and it goes <laughs> something like, La Paperson can when I cannot. And so there's definitely an aspect of writing about things that I otherwise would not write about and publishing things that I otherwise would not publish. Mm-hmm. Um that said, I, I think it's um, not about the right to write, but I, I actually see La Paperson as a way of trying to write without claiming. And I know that's sort of impossible, right? And, um, but, um, but yeah, I, and I have a, a Palestinian friend who says there is like um, a tradition among like, you know, in Arabic literature where you don't write with your name. And the idea is to de-emphasize the author um, and I feel like this is a really the opposite of how authorial presence works in the academy, but also the way um, various European thinkers, I think Foucault has an essay on authorship. And um, so, so, yeah, I, I would like to think of Rob Paperson as a way of, um, I guess that there's a benefit. It's, it's sort of not having to um, be able to step back from claiming. Hmm. I like that. That is, I was not expecting that answer to that question, and it is a very lovely answer. Speaking, Thank you. Uh, speaking of spaces of uh, creation and maybe even thought experimentation, this book, A Third University is Possible, is billed as gray literature. What is gray literature, and how does it work? <laughs> That's so funny you should ask me, because I didn't know what it was until I read about the series, uh, Forerunner series, in which it's published by Minnesota Press. So first, I guess to answer your question, my, you know, what I read about gray literature <laughs> is is sort of these ideas that are um, somewhere between an article and a book. Mm. And I like the somewhere between part. I don't know about the article and book part as the book ends <laughs> of this, but, yeah. but like the in-between... Um, and, and sort of a willingness to think out loud and a willingness to maybe say that your ideas are not polished and complete um, mm. and uncontestable. 
and I sort of feel like that's how things should be anyways. So, so the, so the idea of gray literature appeals to me for a number of reasons. Um, one is, you know, getting back to, um, you know, this idea of, um, writing without claiming or like theorizing contingently, like just having some contingency in our, in our writing, especially academic writing, which is all about claiming and all about capital. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. and, um, so it's, it was interesting because this is both a piece, uh, Third University is Possible is both a piece that I didn't necessarily feel like I could publish myself, um, like Lock Paperson could do it. Hmm. But also I didn't think it could ever be a book. And it was too long to be an article. Um, and I think the third interesting thing about it, and maybe this, maybe this is not something to say about gray literature for University of Minnesota, but... Uh, it was a failed manuscript, like it was a failed article. Hmm. So um, I have actually like a lot of writing that I never publish because I just feel like it's all, it's not publishable. I I don't know. I mean, maybe I have insecurity or Hmm. imposter syndrome, but I have literally hundreds of pages of unpublished stuff. And I have a few um, articles that I, manuscripts I submitted as um, articles to journals and they were rejected. So the very first manuscript I ever submitted was rejected, and I've never done anything with it. So mm. It just sits around. Um, so this particular article was a was an article that um, I guess I won't name the name the journal that I submitted to, <laughs> but let's just say it was solicited by a highly prestigious prestigious Ivy League journal. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And then I submitted it, and it was promptly rejected. <laughs> and it, I just, you know, it was just like, of course it was, you know, because who am I, you know? Why did I think I could get published in that journal? Um, and uh, and it just wasn't ever going to go anywhere. Hmm. You know, it just sort of sat around, and I just added to my pile of failures as an academic writer. Yeah, it seemed to hit that sweet spot just right, I guess. Uh, we're going to talk about contingency in a minute, but I want to kind of just kind of go back into the way in which gray literature foregrounds what I was about to read, because I think you're right. I think that anything you write, whether it's a book or an article or something creative or even something informal in a blog format or newsletter or wherever you're pushing out your stuff, um, that it is almost always already supposed to be intensely thought out and it's a place of speculation and change and creativity and electricity of intellectual exchange. I kept thinking about how telling me it was gray literature, at least that's what the Forerunners Ideas first series says on the back of this book, telling me that this was a space where this thinker was about to speculate wildly and then also say something intensely thoughtful, it made it, 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 it invited me to hold what you were about to, what I was about to read from you, it invited me to hold it very gently. And I think Aww. I really like that. I really like it. I don't know why I needed to be prompted that way. I've been in, I've been doing graduate work for a while. I've been reading a lot of things critically. I have this show. But when I saw that on the back of the book, I was like, hey, I this is not about me tearing this person to pieces. Let's see what they have to say. Let's let's speculate let's speculate wildly together for a little while. I like that. And I was curious, you know, is is this a new phase in the way in which publishing thought and process, how important it is to like knowledge in the humanities where we've, we've always struggled to get it out and struggled to be comfortable with 
diverse ways of spreading it around. Wow. Well, what you said is just beautiful, and I don't think I can say anything to even match that. <laughs> but, um, but I know there's a number of these small series now. So um, Berkeley, University of California Press has one. Um, I think it might be in American Studies, or I can't remember. But so I, I think there is a trend that direction, and mm. maybe that's a really good trend. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, you're one of the first people I've talked to about this book. <laughs> you know, that's what's kind of funny. It, so, um, so I hadn't heard about. You know, it's so interesting how how you um, chose to sort of receive it and engage it. Like this, what you said about holding it very gently. You know, that's so generous, and that's what I, you know, that's what I would wish for. At least the people I like, that's what I would wish for their <laughs> writing, is that for people to hold it gently, yeah. you know, and not try to just shred it to pieces. Um, I, You know, I'm very fearful of, of um, I think, of being ripped to, sh- to shreds, you hmm. know? Um, and maybe maybe most people are. Um, and then it feels very limiting on... Um, that fear, to me, feels very limiting as, as to what... I'm willing to say, you know, what courage I will have to say things. But but then I also think within the academy, there's a tendency to write defensively, you know, not in everybody's work, but mm-hmm. but it's almost like you're trying to preempt those attacks, right? And um, and I don't think defensive writing is a is a good thing either, you know. Mm-hmm. So so writing with an obvious thesis and an obvious set of evidence that proves what you have to say beyond a fraction of doubt, you know, that's I think that's defensive writing. Yeah. Hmm. I hadn't thought about defensive writing as a style before, but I think I, I agree with you definitely. We also have a series up here, ARP Books, that has really something called the Semaphore series, which are small books about big ideas. And mm-hmm. But in a lot of ways, they're not the same sort of... There isn't the same kind of electricity that I found with your with your piece because oftentimes they are less opening up considering or thinking through something and more about condensing down a smaller book into a bigger book into a smaller book. So I didn't feel that shrink, that shrinkage with a third university as possible. I actually felt like it was just opening up many brilliant ideas and just giving them the space to roam for a bit, which I don't know if that was intentional or not. Um, Well, thank you for saying that. I mean, that's definitely the intent. And, and I don't think of the ideas in the book as mine, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so, so, um, and I feel like sometimes it's interesting that you say space to roam. Like, Hey, I feel like sometimes, um, there's like domestication of ideas in in academic writing and, um, you know, and, and part of that domestication is about ownership, right? To say, I own these ideas and they're mine. Um, and I do see a lot of this, um, and I say this in my teaching to my students. I say, you know, if anything I say resonates to you, to you, it's not because you learned it from me. It's because I was meant to tell it to you. Like, this was knowledge that someone whispered to me or I overheard somewhere because I was meant to pass it to you, right? Mm. And so I feel like this, this sort of, um, you know, letting loose things that maybe have been captive um, is is part of the intent of the book. Um so definitely. And then it's interesting that you used the word electricity. Like that was, de- I think that was something that um, 
was very intentional with the whole idea of the cyborg. I've heard people pronounce it Skyborg, which I sort of like better. <laughs> <laughs> I like you know, that too, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's, you know, like I, I sort of remember going through this. Um, so it took me a long time to publish this book from when the publishers were okay with it to when I was okay with it because I didn't feel like it had that electricity. And I felt like, how can you write a book about, you know, Skyborgs and machines and, you know, these kinds of things and not have electricity in there? So it's, so that that was definitely that that sort of, I don't want to say chaotic, but, you know, you, can, you imagine like a lightning bolt. You imagine like what electricity does. Um, I think that's also, um, you know, that, that unleashing of electricity was um, also part of the muse. Hmm. I like that. Let's dig into some of the, the machinery, I guess, of the book, then the nuts and bolts of it. Um, one of the quotes towards the back of the book, working backwards, forwards, is a third world university is less interested in decolonizing the university and more in operating a decolonizing university. I love that phrase. We spend a lot of time in institutions up here in Canada, especially talking about ways to decolonize. But universities are engaged in decolonizing processes. Why does the focus on decolonizing the university pull energy away from the decolonizing process, you think, when subverting technologies? Why do you, how do you understand that in your own sort of thermodynamic conceptualization of the university space? Wow. Um, I love how you ask questions. <laughs> thermodynamic. Um, well, so the way you said that makes me think about... Um, cars and so i'll just ask you a personal question like do you drive a car what kind of car do you drive <laughs> 2008 honda civic <laughs> okay nice nice <laughs> our family has a 2008 honda accord <laughs> so i get it cousins but i also have this really old car it's a 1992 saab 900 Ooh. turbo <laughs> those are the good ones and i have a i have a child we have a son and he calls it the millennium falcon because it <laughs> It's about the same operating principle. you got to bang on it to make it work. <laughs> um, so, you know, when we think about um, cars, let's say, and cars are not good for the environment. I mean, we, we know the whole thing, the whole deal with cars, right? Mm. And is our goal to build a perfect car, right? So, like, are we trying to make a Tesla? You know, mm. is, that, is that what we're trying to do with the university? Are we trying to decolonize the university? Are we trying to buy create a product that we feel better about buying. It's like, you know, it's like going to a vegetarian restaurant or something, right? Um, and, um, and you know, the, I think the Tesla is a good metaphor because it's so, so shiny, so new, so perfect, and so unaffordable. And, and the resources that went into getting it, you know, like if, if, that, is, if that is sort of the model for um, what we should be aspiring for, than aspiring to, um, then I, I, you know, that's not an indigenous future. I'm not saying like native people can't drive Teslas. I think that'd be great, <laughs> you know, funny, mm-hmm. right? But, but, um, but I think more about like how do you take your car, you take the engine out of it, and you connect it to a pump, and you pump out wastewater, you know, from from a field, right? Or you know something along those lines, right? And I see that as not trying to fix the car, but how do you take this machinery and tur- turn it to purposes that um, align with decolonization? Hmm. And so for me, that's like, I'm not opposed to 
making Teslas, like, don't get me wrong, and just like I'm not opposed to decolonizing the university, um, but I, I feel like what I'm more interested in is um, how do we take this thing called the university, this machinery, and subverting it or reassembling it to other intentions, mm. to decolonizing intentions. Mm-hmm. Reassembling it, it, it is so much about reassemblages in the way in which these machineries can work anew or work other. When I was at that conference in Toronto with Zoe Todd and, and Eve Tuck, hearing them talk about how rematriation is the lens in which we view decolonizing or decolonizing machinery in an institution, I best understood that through uh, the the individual that you bring up, uh, Tanahasi Coates, and Between the World and Me, where he talks about Howard University and the Mecca, how it was the Mecca of thought, of uh, black intellectual thought and congregation and critical mass, and he had to go there. But the university existed beyond just its institutional reputation. It was also the sum of all of its parts. And just produced these this incredible, this this incredible diverse roster of indigenous or not indigenous sorry black talent and and black and thinkers. I only, however, understand creating that university through what Coates talks about in Jim Crow laws and how certain thinkers weren't going there. How come I <laughs> one? Tell me how come I'm so stuck in understanding how we can change universities, but two. Um, I think Coates is tapping into exactly what you're talking about, right? Where the university has its own energy, its own spirit, its own spatial relationship to its region, to its to its thinkers, to its contributors. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about a third third university, right? Yeah, I I don't think you're stuck. I I feel like that totally makes sense. Um, you know, like I I sort of try to reserve space for this fourth world university thing, mm. right? I don't talk about intentionally. And for me, it's because the third university is not ideal. Like, it's not a utopia. And um, and it is indeed, like, when you talk about Howard University built out of the Jim Crow days, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it is indeed a very problematic... Um, it's, it's the... It's a outspring, or you know, it's it's built from very out of very problematic um, other apparatuses, I guess. Um, and so, yeah, the the mecca, you know, what he says is that they are related but not the same. And so, so first, I think the mecca is not Howard University, even though it is Howard University, right? Hmm. And even though it is it it is created with Howard University, it's not created. You know, it is its own thing, um, but it's also not perfect. Like, I, I think that that's, I mean, if that's why you're stuck, I think that makes sense. Like, we, mm. it is not, you know, it's not a destination. The third university is not a destination for me. Mm. You know, I think it's it's kind of like decolonization is an elsewhere. You know, I guess you could think of it as a destination, but it's an elsewhere. And the third university is not that. It's not an elsewhere. Mm. It is... Um, it is this thing that I think, um, you know, Watiango says, um, when did the post-colonial happen? He said it happened as soon as the colonial happened. Mm. As soon as those things are completely imbricated, like there was never a moment of total conquest. There was never a moment of total colonization. And from the very, any time you see the, the beginning of a colonial moment, 
there as a decolonial writer in that moment. And I, I think that, so I feel like the Mecca is just as old as Howard University, but they are sort of twins, I, I suppose. Hmm. When I read that in Coates's letters in, in Between the World and Me, I was like, dang, you know, what is what is the indigenous Mecca? I kept thinking about that. I was like, which university in Canada anyway would be the closest relationship to being creating decolonizing riders or decolonial riders while at the same time being responsible to the ecologies that exist in and the worlds that exist in and contributes to its community. And I, I could I honestly couldn't think of one. And I oh, thought wow. I thought of all the different places that are good, but I couldn't think of something where I was like, well, where are all the Nietzsche's going, where all the de- all the best Nietzsche's doing all the best things. And I was like, I can't think of the spot. I can't think of which oh. one is doing that. You mean there's nothing like quite analogous to Howard is what you're saying. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel that. And I mean, I totally feel that. But but I do think like, I mean, you're with um, one of, sort of a indigenous um, lodge, right? Bald Eagle Lodge, is that? Yeah, Megaziagamic, uh, yeah. And um, I mean, that's, that's definitely a third university kind of apparatus, hmm. you know? Um I, I keep trying to bring that kind of concept to our university. You know, like, we're in San Diego, and um, I, I once uh, uh, video conferenced into my uh, one of my lecture halls. Uh, I was at a conference at um, in Vancouver, mm-hmm. and I said, look at the longhouse here. And, I, you know, we had 400 <laughs> students in a room watching my cell phone video, you know, <laughs> footage of the longhouse. And I just said, why don't we have something like this at UC San Diego? Mm-hmm. You know, and so I like I see I see that kind of space as um, I mean, I, as like a you know, it's like a studio. You know, I, I think one of the one of the metaphors I use in the book is uh, filmmaking. And it's like a filmmaking studio. Right. You have lots of different projects probably emerging out of that space, out of the lodge. Um, and um, and it is sort of a rewiring at the university just to have that space exist. And um and, and I, I assume that you uh, might have indigenous elders who have mm-hmm. actual positions at the university as elders. Yeah, we have about eight. Yeah, we don't have any. I, I brought this up to, I, I met with our chancellor, and I brought this concept to him. <laughs> we don't have even that concept. So, so I, I do think that, um, and, the, and there's specific reasons we don't, you know, and, and maybe we have other things um, in San Diego. But I, I do think that um, the third university exists everywhere. Hmm. And, um, you know, so, I, I mean, just the fact that you have this podcast is amazing. <laughs> and, and you probably didn't create this podcast. You probably, someone else might have created it however long ago. But then that was a possibility because someone else's creation, right? And I feel hmm. like that's like that assemblage upon assemblage upon assemblage that, constitutes the third university. The notion of the third university, uh, you're working largely or inspired largely from black film criticism, right? Yes. And the notion of first cinema, second cinema, and third cinema. Mm -hmm. And what I really love is this entangling or entanglement of indigenous and black feminist organizing is how you sort of describe it how indigenous feminisms and black feminisms can cooperate to halt black violation and and indigenous disappearance 
in a sort of decolonizing land biopolitic. Can you sketch out what that means for us? Because I think I get it, but I I want to I want to better understand how indigenous feminisms and black feminisms kind of cooperate simultaneously. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, these are not my ideas. <laughs> In this case, I'm drawing really heavily from Tiffany King. Mm. And um, and I think Tiffany King um, talks about this in actually very practical terms. Like, I, I think she talks about uh, an example from, I want to say, um, in the Toronto area, where a group of, of black feminists and native feminists um, actually acquired land. Mm. And they acquired land in order to rematriate it, you know. Um, but then they were able to live on that land, right? So, so I, I think that's like, you know, the the most direct and um, you know straightforward answer. Mm-hmm. Um, and and in my own experience, so you know, I was drawn into settler colonialism. Um, uh, I mean, thinking and critiquing settler colonialism from more of a black studies perspective because that's just my sort of home organizing community is Oakland, California, which is on Ohlone land. Uh, and, um, and I was really drawn into it by thinking, you know, what is colonization when we talk about um, American ghettos? Because everyone says, I mean, people on the street use the word colonization and talking about the conditions, right? Mm-hmm. This is not a, you know, an academic theory. And to me, I, was, you know, well, what is it that is specific and particular to ghetto colonization? What exactly is it? And I think one of the things that I came to understand is, like, anti-blackness in a ghetto setting is a type of permanent or constant dislocation. Like, you can be moved to one block, and then you can move to the next block, and then gentrification come, and you can move with them, move to another block. You know, it's a constant dislocation. And so this idea of being able to be, like, black life as being able to be somewhere mm-hmm. is, is, like, quite radical and quite impossible under settler colonial logics, right? So, um, so then in my own experience, like, uh, one of the things that I was involved with was um, I helped uh, open a school in Oakland, a high school, and um, and that 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 work is still continuing with um, people I was working with. But at one point, our school was closed. It was closed actually by the state. It's it's like you know, um, people in um, sort of urban settings in the United States don't usually interact directly with the state. You know, I know Native people do all the time, right? And it's like you literally deal with state agents, right? What well, we were. Like one of those exceptional cases where, as a as a school, we were directly dealing with state agents, and they closed us down. Um, mm. And I kept thinking how, if we were subject to different sovereignty, this would be a whole different thing. I'm not saying it would be perfect, right? Um, and that's when I started thinking, like, next time we do this, we should. Acquire land, rematriate it to the Chichenyo Ohlone um, people, and subject ourselves to being guests on their land. Hmm. You know, so so I I do think that this relation um, between Black and Indigenous peoples is is a more ancient relation, anyways. But it's also like one that 
provides, uh, you know, pathways of freedom from the state. Right, yeah, you're right. And this is in page 18. This is where I pulled this quote from. You write that land must be decolonized into a simultaneity of black life as being, which requires black places to be and to be joyful without the imminent threat of violation, and of indigenous life as being and place, which requires places, peoples, to be regenerated. This is a decolonizing land biopolitics, so to speak. And I was thinking about how that entanglement works, how rematriation of land creates a space for, um, as you write, black life to be and to be joyful and indigenous life, people and places, as you borrow from Lone Tree, to be regenerated. And that is such, I love, I love the tenderness in that, in that articulation. But what I love more about it is that it's contingent on the health of the land and the health of the people in relation to that land and the health of people and places to that land. So it's an incredibly supportive net that I don't think we think enough about critically in the institution in this. And, and you invited us to do that here. And I, and I love that. Yeah. And um, thank you so much for one thing. And, but you know, these are not my ideas, obviously, <laughs> you know, so um, drawing from Jack Forbes and Amy Lone Tree and Tiffany King, but I mean, I'm sure you've heard these kinds of things from your grandmothers, you know? Um, and um, I, I don't know why um, I think it was to take this and, and and to make a call for what we can mm. do, those of us who are caught in the university, you know, the, the type of work that we can do. Hmm. I have a million questions to ask you, but we're going to have to, uh, we're going to have to wrap. So, uh, Wayne, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Uh, talk to me to share for everything that you do in the name of Indigenous support decolonization, resurgence, allyship, thinking creatively, your compassion, your attention to detail, and the gifts you have as an intellectual and as a scholar. Thank you so much, and thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. I'm so grateful to have this time to talk with you. At the Edge of Canada is produced at the UMFM studios on the University of Manitoba campus in Winnipeg, Manitoba. The University of Manitoba is situated on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, the Cree, the OJ Cree, the Dakota, and the Dene peoples, and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. You can get all updated podcasts and live streams for At the Edge of Canada at umfm.com, or you can listen to us live on the UMFM app. The lead track is Nahewak Starlight. And if you like what you hear from me, you can follow me on Twitter at T fillers. Up next, your campus today.